Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode.
pre-race, during that jog? What didn't happen? Where was I? What happened to me that allowed me to reach in and realize potential that I had no idea I had? And this was the big question. How do I do it again? Not by accident, but on purpose in every area of my life. The other big question is, what potential is there in each of us that we don't realize. One of my favorite quotes is from Wayne Dyer. He said, don't die with the music still inside of you. And I know that many people at the end of their lives, they're realizing with regret that they didn't spend much time with their children, that they didn't spend much time with their own bodies, that they missed opportunities for joy. No one ever says, gee, I wish I'd spent more hours in the office. That's right. <laughs> or I wish I'd worked harder at that, that, that drudgery that I used to focus on. And so, Many people find all kinds of reasons and excuses not to find and express their full potential. And so I love the way in your work, in your book, that you give people many different ways of unlocking that potential inside of them, not just something that you've focused on and been able to actualize yourself, but that you're giving people practical ways of tuning into that ability to unlock their own personal potential and discover their own personal best. Yeah, I mean, I am... This is my passion. I, I've been moving bodies in some capacity for 30 years. I started teaching figure skating at 15 and have been teaching straight through up until now. And one thing that I see every single day, because I teach yoga now, I've been teaching for a couple of decades, is I see potential emerge in people. I see see it every day as they come in stress, they may come in busy or low energy, and I see over the course of an hour, hour and a half, by moving and breathing in rhythm with breath, I see them light up, and it is so inspiring. I have this, really this incredible trust in our human potential, in our human intelligence, in our capacity to create and connect, and that I've got to share it with others. And when people are able to get in touch with that, they often do really surprise you. There are people that you may think and look at them and, and wonder if they can do much better, and then often they will do things that just maybe surprise themselves. Tell us a couple of stories of clients you've worked with who have found their personal best or transcended their limitations to find a new level of potential. Well, I remember this one instance when I was a young yoga teacher, and uh, I always had a lot of spitfire, so, you know, I was always kind of throwing stuff out there and had, had studied with Tony Robbins in my early 20s, so I kind of had some of his mojo going on. And, and this woman came up to me after class, and she looked me in the eyes, and she said, I'm leaving my job, I'm leaving my husband, and I'm moving out of town. And I said, oh my gosh, I, okay, well, I hope we see you soon. And she said, no, I just made that decision now. And I have another client who is a friend of mine who, it was in one particular 8.30 yoga class that I was teaching. He made the decision that day to walk out of the studio and head straight to an AA meeting. And this was I think nine years ago, and he has and he has been sober ever since. So it's not me. It's just what happens when we are able to really connect with it. And there's a lot of research showing that yoga is effective in regulating our autonomic nervous system, that it helps us with our fight or flight response, that it reduces stress by chemicals like cortisol. So I've been quite impressed by the range of benefits that yoga offers just in terms of our both our psychology, but also especially our, our human biology. Yes, there's no doubt. In fact, I'm in, in the process of having some research done over at my center because we teach a very specific mindfulness-based yoga. So not only 
if are we getting the benefits of the physical practice, but there's also the mindfulness component. And as we know, I mean, there's been 4,000 peer-reviewed studies on mindfulness and how it affects our brain and our physiology, stress, everything is is improved and benefited from simple mindfulness practices. So you're combining mindfulness with yoga? Yes. Well, I find that you can. When I do yoga myself, I find that you can do it as a physical exercise, and some people do, but that if you're able to bring mindfulness into it, that that makes it much more centered and conscious practice. So how, how do you do that? Well, first we start with a very simple template of poses. So at Verge Yoga, we have three basic types of classes, and we keep our classes very consistent for a reason, because if every time you came in, the teacher was doing something completely different, your mind would stay very alert to what they were doing. And instead of allowing your mind to settle and allowing yourself to really drop in and start to experience your body at a different level, our classes are consistent, the rhythm is consistent, and the cueing of the breath is very consistent so that it really does help you settle and stabilize your thinking mind and your nervous system early on. And then what we do is offer up pockets of silence throughout the practice and you're guided almost almost like through a guided meditation where you'll be guided to keep your focus on the breath. Notice if your mind is being pulled away by thought without judgment, come back to your breath. So this is all filtered throughout the yoga practice. And then, of course, you have the final rest, which is a beautiful um, resting pose where you're able to rest in open awareness. And so, but we do talk mindfulness throughout the class. Yeah, that that is powerful. Also, I think that uh, you're wise to not be bringing people into their heads with new things to do. That also is, is worthwhile. I know I also really enjoy yoga classes where the teacher gives us time to do them. I felt most yoga classes, I felt I felt hurried through the routine that the teacher has in his or her mind. Whereas um, if there's time to just really inhabit the pose, stretch into it, be in it, that it's much more mindful than dashing onto the next one. I agree with you, and I and I feel in some ways that yoga over the last you know ten years has evolved into sometimes being a little bit of a performance, or how many different poses can I squeeze into an hour, um, or how fancy can I make my sequencing? And unfortunately, what that means is that the student is in some ways uh, robbed of the silence and the space to have a direct experience of themselves in the moment. So it becomes like, you know, running on the treadmill with the TV on and the headphones and the magazine. In some ways, it can become like that. We need that space as students to maneuver through our psyche to, to hear those subtle sensations arising, emerging from our body. If, if we're just feeling you know, too, we're moving too quickly or if teacher's talking nonstop, we never get that experience. Yes, right. And that uh, does allow us a chance to settle into our bodies. You also have a lot of techniques in your book on the verge and I'd like just to maybe cover a few of the ones you you, you you advocate ones like meet your mind, trusting intelligence, doing a gut check, welcoming peace, and so on. Just share with us some of your favorite techniques for integrating that process. Sure, I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to first give you a, um, a little background on on what the verge means, if that's okay. Yes. Because that, that's going to be helpful in describing the practices and what we're kind of shooting for in our practices, so to speak. So the verge, so after, after this race that I had, I went on my own personal journey to look for how do I 
realize my my potential in all areas of my life. How is that done? When is it done? And so years later, my husband went to the Amazon and spent some time with an indigenous community. And he came back and he started to tell me about this one juncture of land that, that they would often stop on and sit on. And it's this juncture where rivers come together. There's a convergence of ecosystems. And it's been proven that these on these junctures that life thrives. Animal life, wildlife, are they flourish. They're at their most diverse. So when he told me that, this place is called The Verge. And I just went crazy. I was like, whoa, you mean there's a place where I would thrive, that I would meet my potential? And so I started looking into where is this place? Does it exist? Is there one here? And over the course of more years of inquiry, I recognized, you know, it took me a while to get there, but that that this moment is The Verge. And when we can wake up and show up right here, right now, in this moment, beyond doubt and fear, beyond busyness, we thrive right here, right now. And so that is really the foundation of what I talk about with my practices. How do we wake up out of our busy mind? How do we show up in the present moment over and over again where we shine? I love the quote you have that living on the verge is not about doing more, but about being more. It isn't about achieving more. It's about experiencing more. And that is so very pointed to me. I remember reading a quote of Richard Branson's recently, and a friend of mine was at Richard Branson's island, Necker Island, and he was in a group of people talking to Richard Branson, founder of Virgin Atlantic and many other companies, the Virgin Group of Companies, and the one person in the group was thanking Richard Branson so effusively, saying, Richard, I was here last year, you gave me one idea, and that idea doubled the size of my business. And Richard Branson was not very impressed. He said to the guy, well, that's great, but are you happier? <laughs> and I thought that's the question is are you happier rather than you meet that metric just being here experiencing where you are being who who you are rather than achieving more experiencing fully what you have all the good things you have to experience now is a far more important metric than than doing more yeah that that's wonderful and it, it brings to mind, you know, when I talk about being present, I really talk about being fully alive because I think that I, in my experience, more people can understand what that means to be fully alive, to be highly charged. I love the name of your show, you know, that high energy. doesn't mean you're jumping off roofs all the time or jumping, you know, climbing mountains, but it's that sense of being lit from within, like the Buddha said. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that would be it. You could double your company, the size of your company, but do you feel more alive? You know, great. What is uh, an early initial introductory practice you could give people to help them experience that place of being more alive? So I have a bunch of practices I call primer practices, which are it's kind of like priming the pump, you know, on your, your lawnmower. You've got to do that little squishy thing, that little button to kind of get the gas going before you rev the engine. Well, these primer practices help you to tap into these moments of aliveness that are happening all day long. And to me, this is key. We're already present. We're already experiencing aliveness all throughout the day. We're just speeding by those moments. We're so busy we don't realize that we, you know, smelled the coffee brewing or that we, our, our daughter did something, you know, so sweet that morning. We just speed right by. And so these primer practices are helping us to interrupt our busyness 
to recognize moments of full aliveness, what I call high-definition, high-voltage living. And so it may be, you know, pausing and taking five breaths and looking at the sky. I call it sky gaze. Or it may be stopping and pausing to notice your senses. What am I sense-smelling, seeing, tasting, touching, feeling? So these little things that we can do, these mindfulness practices that help us to become familiar with what it feels like to be present, what it feels like to be in the center of our lives where we access potential all the time. Just noticing those initially is the gateway. Right. Noticing those starts to allow us to glimpse and recognize these glimpses. So I ask people, what makes you feel fully alive? I ask people all the time, and a lot of times people have to think about it. Sometimes it's just like the beach, the mountains, the nature, my kids, my dog, you know, my work, my painting, this, that. Like, great. You want to lean into those because those are your clues. Those activities, those moments in your lives will leave you clues about what it feels like to be present. That way, when you get to your more formal practices, which you asked me about before, that way, when you get to your meditation practice, you can recognize those moments, the gap between stimulus and response, like Viktor Frankl said, right? We could start to notice those moments of presence more and more and more and cultivate our capacity to sustain those. Yes, and of course, there's the old saying that what you appreciate, appreciate. Mm -hmm. And so what we focus on, what we pay attention to, the states of being that we cultivate are those that become more intense, more profound, and grow in us. So if we become habituated to doing that and practice doing that over and over and over again regularly in our lives, that starts to become a natural state rather than an occasional glimpse. I love that that uh, the way you, you nudge us to doing that throughout the book in many different ways. And I think that some of those practices will appeal to some people, others will appeal to others, and the, there's no real right or wrong in any of the practices, but whatever practice you find works for you is the one worth doing. If you experiment with many different ones, you'll find a constellation of them that really helps you be mindful, helps bring you back, and then you go ahead and do that, practice that, continue doing that for a while, and afterwards, rather than becoming an occasional state, setting up your psyche to that being your habitual state. So I love the way you give us many different kinds of practices in the book. Cara, that state of being in which you're always present and living in the moment, you call it our, our natural state, one where we don't need to improve anything, don't need to change, just experiencing ourselves as we are. Go ahead and tell us more about that because I think that many of us are, are not there. We're driven to distraction by the chatter in our minds, the demands of our lives, and so on. So go ahead and sh- share more about what you call our natural state. Yes, I'm happy to. So our natural state is, is really our birthright. It's the place where we go when we are beyond busyness, when we're able to drop below doubt or fear, when we're paused in life in many aspects, and we could still be moving our body and be in our natural state. So what happened to me when I was a track runner at 19 was I had the race of my life because I had nothing to gain and nothing to lose in my last race. And so I let that all go. I let all the fear and the doubt and the comparison and the expectation go, and I was able to run from a place that was very different than I'd ever done before. And in doing so, I had the race of my life. Well, now I know that this doesn't have to happen by accident, that we can actually train ourselves to live below the static of busy mind, is what I say, below the static of doubt, fear, judgment, past 
future fantasy in a place that is what I call clear mind, bright body, open heart. So this isn't anything we have to manufacture or try to get to. It's more of an allowing and a letting go into. So what I often ask people is that when you can recognize those moments in your life when you feel awake and alive, maybe it's being at the beach, maybe it's rolling around the floor with your dog, maybe it's reading with a cup of tea in the afternoon, those moments that light you up, this these are, in, these are clues. These moments will leave you clues about what it feels like to be in your natural state of clear mind, bright body, open heart. And these are just my words. And in the book, I offer a lot of different snapshots, I call them, because I recognize that my words may not fit you, and you may have a whole different experience in your natural state, and that's okay. I'm just using words that are often used when, talk, when we talk about uh, the ground of our being or our true nature. And so what happens when we're able able to pause of all the mental busyness and the habits and the patterns that we're kind of running on autopilot all the time. When we're able to just rest in this moment, fully engaged in the center of this moment, we're going to access this very open, easy way of being. And we actually do better when we're here. Everything we do, we connect more, we create more, we contribute contribute more, we're more compassionate. So it's a place that really we all want to kind of get familiar with, but oftentimes we're just speeding through life and we don't know where to look. So how do we bring ourselves to that place if our habit is not to be there? So start to recognize moments throughout the day, and they I call them glimpses. They may be split-second moments when you feel engaged in whatever you're doing. It could be cooking dinner. It could be tasting the tomato sauce, you know, or when you see a flock of birds fly by your windshield or look up to see the sun setting. These are moments when that capture your attention. These are moments when time stands still. So if you just start to notice them and recognize them, ah, this is one of those moments of being alive. This is a moment of being alive. You're going to start to notice them all over the place. And what happens when you start to notice them more, you're going to want more. You're going to want to be there more because you know how great it feels. And that's when I think people come to the more formal practices and start committing to the formal practices where you can cultivate your capacity to pay attention on purpose. Yes, because all those examples you gave us, that's when it happens by accident. That's when it just happens to happen because something is occurring that you're paying attention to and being in the moment. And you can go from it being accidental in that way to being it's deliberate and analyzing those moments and saying, I'm going to make it my business to actually create those moments. And then rather than be accidental, they become something that you're actually cultivating in your life. That's right. And what we know now, as you know, Dawson, you know, we're not just doing this just to do it just because, you know, it's some personal transformation book and they're giving you a bunch of practice and it all sounds good. You know, we know now that, that this stuff affects our physiology. I mean, we know now that we have the capacity to change our brain and the way our brain functions. We can make long-term changes. If you're if you're prone to anxiety, by practicing mindfulness and committing yourself to mindfulness practice, you can change the reaction that you have out there in life to perhaps be less anxious or not triggered as much. And this stuff, I'm not just saying this. This is, you know, 4,000 peer-reviewed studies on mindfulness and the effects on the body and the brain and emotions. I mean, this is a great time to be alive. 
I was very struck by one MRI example that I came across recently. It was of a TV reporter who learned mindfulness, and he was skeptical initially. He said all this meditation stuff, what uses it. And uh, so he went on an eight-week journey to learn and practice mindfulness. And before he began, some colleagues of his at the local university put him through an MRI scanner, and they measured his brain. They measured the volume of the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex and all of the different lobes and structures in the brain. And he then went through this eight-week process, and then they put him in another MRI. And they noticed real changes in different parts of the brain. Certain parts of the brain had grown in volume. And they'd grown in volume by 4%, 2%, 7%, fairly appreciable amounts in just that eight-week period. But what I was absolutely amazed by was that the part of the hippocampus that got emotional regulation across different parts of the brain. So it's responsible for coordinating the signaling of emotional regulatory signals across various parts of the brain. That part of the hippocampus had grown by 22%. I was just stunned that a part of our brain that's so important in just eight weeks of a certain kind of spiritual and mental practice is producing that dramatic effect on our physiology by 22%. So this isn't a trivial effect when we practice these kinds of skills. They are producing often massive changes in the way our bodies function. Cara, I'd love to check in with you about some of the body practices that you recommend for us to achieve this state of attention and flow. What is it you teach in that respect? Well, I have one of the verge practices called Move My Body, and it's a way of using your workouts or your walk around the park as a way to cultivate mindfulness. So, so often, you know, we throw on the track shoes and we run out the door or we jump on the treadmill or whatever you do and there's no real uh, middle to the practice. You may go, you know, beginning to end at one speed. Well, as a strength coach, I've developed a way to help people create a practice, a movement practice that can help them cultivate mindfulness, which again is the practice of paying attention on purpose. And so what I suggest to you to do is to set an intention before you go out to do whatever you're going to do. Just a short intention. Why am I doing this? Maybe it's just to break a sweat. Maybe it's to uh, work on an issue at work. Maybe it's just to calm yourself down after a busy day, but some sort of intention to thread throughout the practice. Then in the first few minutes, you've got a warm-up, right? We all know that. You don't want to go to a sprint too quickly. But during that warm-up, find a rhythm, a very slow rhythm where you can start to synchronize your breath with movement. So for instance, if you're walking, it may be, you know, every couple of steps, it's an inhale. Every couple of steps, it's an exhale. Some sort of rhythm, because what happens when we move and breathe in rhythm, is that we start to come into this synchronized state. Our systems, our brain waves, our heart waves, our nervous systems start to sync up or entrain. And what happens then is that it elicits a, a sense of well-being. So some sort of rhythm is going to get you going, is going to help you stabilize and settle. Your thoughts will settle as well. And then during some time in the middle of your practice, you're going to challenge yourself. And this is something that a lot of folks forget. There's got to be a time in there where you are challenging yourself, whether it be lifting up more weight, doing more reps, going a little bit faster for a certain period of time, because that's the only place that we're going to grow. We've got to be leaning into the boundaries of what our muscles, our mind, and our hearts are capable of doing in order for us to adapt and grow. And then at the end, after a slower cool down, 
you're going to take a couple of minutes of silence. This is the prize, right? It's like the end of the yoga class when you take final rest. But why not do it after a walk? Why not do it after spin class? Just go off, sit in your car, close your eyes, and tune into your body and notice your aliveness. Notice the incredible symphony that's happening inside your body after you move it. And this is where, again, we can start to connect with that sense of being present, of being alive, of feeling awake in your life. This is how we are able to access that high voltage energy, that incredible power that moves through us constantly that we're often just too busy to notice. So that's move my body. That kind of integration too of awareness and body is very powerful and it enables you to do things with both your attention and your body that you can't do when they're disjointed. I looked at the brain scans of people with PTSD and what you see is that the 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 brain regions and the, the brainwave states that have to do with their bodies and those that have to do with their minds are not in sync. And so if you look at the the EEG readout of, of, of a traumatized person, a person who's not there, a person who's in emotional distress, what you see is what looks like a series of waves that are very divergent, that aren't flowing together. But if you look at somebody in that state of flow, in that stage of mind-body unity you're describing, what you see is really coherent brainwaves and their whole physiology is in coordination with their mental state, and this really shows up powerfully on their EEG readout. Fascinating. It's so fascinating, and I know HeartMath does a lot of this coherence work as well, where they, they, they have so much research to show that you know, this, is, this is something that we can train ourselves to do. And so yes. I love the movement of the body because as Westerners, we're so much more inclined to move um, than we are to sit and be still in a meditation. And so I, I approach meditation the way I teach it is through movement first, even if it's going for a 10-minute walk and then sitting down to, to uh, practice meditation. Oftentimes, you're much more successful when you do that, when you're a newbie. You mentioned intention a couple of times, and I'd love to hear an example of how an intention of yours has played itself out and become apparent in the outer material reality. So how, for you, have have intentions then become manifest as concrete external realities? Well, I launched my book back in April, and the pub date was going to be April 12th, and that's the date we had everything geared toward. Well, what started to happen was I kept sensing and intending, you know, what was going to happen during this launch, what was going to happen, and I was preparing myself so much that something amazing happened. Amazon decided to launch the book three weeks early, and at first, I was completely aghast. I said, I, you know, I thought nothing, none of the systems are in place. What's going to happen? We're not ready. And lo and behold, the um, amazing power of the universe was at work because um, I have worked with and trained the Villanova basketball team. And Jay Wright, the head coach, who was coach of the year because they won the national championship this year, happened to, happens to have the front cover endorsement of my book. And so lo and behold, Villanova goes into the final four and my book is launched on the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, the synchronicity was uncanny, but it gets even better because that was the final four on Saturday night. And so I have, you know, all the people in the Philadelphia area, everybody's going crazy and saying, my gosh, this is so great that, you know, he's on the cover of your book and the the team is in the book. Well, that Monday morning, the morning they won the national championship on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, the headlines read, Villanova is on the verge, <laughs> which is the title <laughs> of my book. <laughs> 
So wow, that, is that a... was just an incredible stroke of um, intention, intention aligned with magic. When you have those intentions and you're truly aligned with the universe, then remarkable things can happen in the outside world. That is a wonderful story. Tara, one thing you talk about in the book is the art of being kind. And not only is kindness a practice you advocate in the book, but it's also one, something that really permeates the book. You really get kindness as you read that, read it. So it's your energy that comes through, and I appreciate that. And share with us more about those verb strategies of being kind. Yeah, so this was a, a practice and a, and a strategy that didn't come to me very easily, but I, I talk about it, I teach about it, because it has changed my life and the lives of so many, and that is this idea of being kind to ourselves and showing ourselves compassion and patience as we move through our lives. And as a type A overachiever, you know, I'm a doer-doer, overdoer, overthinker, and so the idea of being kind to myself I always thought was giving myself a break. Well, it couldn't be more further from the truth. And being kind is like a blanket that you wrap around yourself and move forward into the world in a bright and brilliant way. And so um, some of the practices that I offer, the strategy, particularly the be kind strategy, is to start to notice your inner dialogue and how you speak to yourself. And then start to notice how you speak to either your pet or a young child in your life, if you have one, or maybe the way you used to speak to a young child, a, a relationship that's not complicated. So for me, it was my dog, Joey, who was my first dog, and I started to notice how loving I was to him and how joyful and goofy and fun I was when I was with him and the way I talked to him. And so what I've been taught is to turn that back on you. And so if you can start to talk to yourself like you speak to, we call it the love object, which is so corny, it's great, you know. Can you speak to yourself like you speak to your love object, your dog or young child? It starts to soften the edges, and it really did for me. It starts to open things up a little bit, allows for more patience, allows for more kindness. And so this is one of the strategies, and it will shift the way you put yourself out in the world. When we can put our hand on our heart, and it's a great gesture, by the way, if you're listening and could just put your hand on your heart, um, my, my meditation teacher, Scott McBride, always says, you could just give yourself a little pat and say, there, there, sweetheart. You know, there, there. You're doing the best you can. And that's not giving yourself a break or letting yourself off the hook. It's being kind to yourself like you would to your pet or young child. It's wonderful to not exempt yourself from being kind. And I think that kindness, if you practice it as you practice it with others, then does naturally turn itself into internal kindness to yourself. And I've been so struck as I've done live workshops now with thousands of people and, and done a lot of teleseminars with, with, with people how harsh people's interior dialogue is when I hear the things they say inside their heads to themselves. There's a way usually of keeping themselves in line or making themselves not do things they don't want to do like gain weight or not meet a goal or whatever it might be. I've been, been so struck, Kara, by just how harsh a lot of that self-talk is. So being kind to others is one thing. Compassion with others is one thing. And if people can, can practice that, it can start to then extend to, to self and we can start to be loving and kind to, to us as well. How, what a wonderful thing to, to have happened. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's so true that it really, really worked that until 
until we are kind to ourselves and compassionate and allowing, we really are not going to be able to put it out there for others. Recently, I've gone on a, um, a, a Taoist binge, and I've been reading Tao Te Ching and all of, all of the works and recognizing that there is no way that I can practice allowing flow to happen in my business and allowing people the freedom they need to have unless I start to do that at home with myself. It's just not going to happen. And so I think when we can get down to that level that this isn't mushy-gushy stuff again, this is this is just the way it is. <laughs> Yeah. That's what I found. Yeah, that's a really wonderful place to approach your life from. And especially when you've done something maybe that didn't work out well, when you said or did something unconscious, uh, you may have slipped up, you may have not met a goal, you may have failed in some standard you set yourself, then to just still love yourself and not be harshly critical is a very, very powerful practice. And I, when, I, when I meet people sometimes who are very angry or critical of others or disillusioned or whatever, and I, I experience that um, that energy they're putting out in the world, I, I just feel such compassion for them. I think, wow, that external expression must come from a very, very uncomfortable inner place. I just send them love and blessings because I know it can't be easy to be them. But rather than reacting to them and, and feeling as though, hey, that you should be treating other people better, just thinking, having the thought that, wow, you're, you being that way to others must mean you're suffering deeply inside. That's beautiful. And that one of the practices yeah. that I do myself is the, just the loving kindness practice of may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I have peace, may I feel safe. And when we can start to repeat it to ourselves, we can repeat it to those people. People, you know, that cut us off on the highway. May you be at ease. And, and I find myself saying that a lot. May you be happy. May you. And it, it, it helps me to remind myself, you know, to not judge or to get angry. It's far more powerful, too, because then you aren't reacting to them. You are able to choose your your own actions and words. You aren't reacting to others. You know, we only have a minute or two more, Cara, but I want to just ask you about one thing you talk about in the book, which I found intriguing. You only reference this very briefly, but in your book, in your chapter, chapter five on bright body, you talk about how you've been able to be very aware of people's energy since you were a child, and you mentioned that children are often very sensitive, able to see energy. Um, do, you, do you see energy literally around people's bodies? No, I think I'm, I just sense it. I sense it in their, the way that they move because I'm such a movement person that I can really just sense hmm. how, where they're stuck, where they're light, where they're open, where they're heavy, where they're weighted. And, you know, I've been a huge fan of Carolyn Mace. She has been such a big teacher in my life. So I appreciate all the, the places that you've been in your vast knowledge of the energy systems. I can't even claim to be close. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by people who are aware of energy. Some people are very aware of energy. Others can literally see energy. And others are just not tuned into that level of perception at all, and uh, you were mentioning that you never actually shared that with anybody mm. after this point. We wrote about it that in the book, but I think that's, that's, that's powerful to be a teacher, especially a yoga teacher like you are, and be able to be aware of the energy of the people in the room. Yeah, well, I think what I can sense is I sense people's potential, and I don't even know how to quantify that, but I sense potential in people. I sense our human potential. I know it's there, and so that's what drives me to teach. 
It's, I tell people all the time, I'm not looking for you to put two feet behind your head. Just experience yourself, and, and there it is. That's where we start to reach in and tap in. I know, too, for me in the yoga classes, it's also not comparing yourself to others. It's, it's just letting yourself be the way you are, even if the guy next to you can put his feet behind his head and you can't. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to share with you in this hour. Thank you so much for your wonderful work, your beautiful energy, and sharing both of them with us in the course of the last hour. Thank you, Dawson. Great to be here.